to the book of Acts, chapter 11, or you can follow along the same text as there in your bulletins, Acts 11. We have the story of the church at Antioch today, so all of the burning questions you've had about Antioch are going to be answered this afternoon. Uh, set your hearts at rest. You know, we'll talk about the uh, Holy Hand Grenade Factory, as well as other uh, tourist spots in town. One. One person likes Monty Python. Okay. Well, I thought it would be the only thing that you would know about Antioch. But uh, Antioch winds up being pretty important because it's the first time that the uh, church came to exist in a big city. Um, and a big city that wasn't primarily Jewish. And most of the people in the church weren't primarily Jewish. And this is a totally new thing for Christians in the early church. And when you think about a, a large city... Uh, where a lot of people aren't already coached up in the Bible and uh, familiar with the faith and pretty close to the periphery of the faith already, you think there's not much of a chance that the church is going to succeed there. It seems like an unlikely place for the church to do well. But as it turns out, that's not an unlikely place for the church to do well. It seems to be the place the church did the best uh, in its early days as it spread around out from Jerusalem. And so thinking about a church in a city and reading this, it's very tempting for me, I hope for you too, to think, well, can that happen here? Can um, the gospel find the kind of traction in people's lives here that it found in the first century in cities where people weren't very familiar with the faith? And uh, along with that, a corollary question is sort of, why does God have you here in Tucson, Arizona, uh, what does he have in mind for you as somebody who, if you know and trust him, why does he have you living here? And so we're going to think about those things together, thinking about the story of Antioch. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please uh, open our hearts and our minds to you as we listen to your word. Uh, we pray that you'd give us hope and believing and that you'd let us see you at work in Midtown Tucson. Uh, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Read with me, beginning at verse 19 of Acts 11. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And this is the word of the Lord. Sorry for the misprint there. I mean to trip you up. You look at a, a demographic map in the U.S., especially politically, 
And they first started doing this, you know, about 15 years ago with the red and blue thing. And they just do the states. You know, you'd have red states and blue states. And, but they're usually more specific now, and it, it usually goes by counties. And when you look at the red and blue uh, demographic maps by county, uh, what you see in the U.S. is blue islands in the middle of a red country, right? Red landmass, blue islands in the middle of it. Um, when you look at that map and you think, where's the church likely to do well? Is it in the Blue Islands or is it in uh, the Red Land Mass, generally? Where's the church likely to succeed? Where are people most likely to take uh, the message of Jesus to heart and uh, accept him in their lives? Uh, most people, I think, would instinctively say in the red spaces, right? In the, in the flyover area where people are more conservative, where they have more you know, Midwestern values, whatever those are. Uh, the rural places, at least the suburbs, you would say, are places where people tend to be more religious and more open and inclined to a uh, message like the Christian message. And um, Antioch is blue, blue, blue in the map of the Middle East, if you can stretch the analogy. I can stretch analogy because I'm a preacher. And, uh, but this is a urban, cosmopolitan, super ethnically diverse, uh, super uh, religiously pluralistic city with all the money, art, political influence, and everything that goes with that. And that's the place and the kind of place that the Christian message in particular took root and had its best resonance in the early church. So let me ask you this, assuming that you answered the way I wanted you to, uh, why do we assume that cities are inhospitable to the Christian faith? Cities and city people are inhospitable. Why would we assume that? Um, I don't know all the reasons. I'll surmise a few. Uh, the city seems bigger than Jesus when you look at it. When you look at um, just the scope, the size, the uh, ability that people have to do things on such a large scale with so many people. I mean, Antioch is like 15 times the size of Jerusalem. It's a huge city comparatively. It was like the third biggest one in the whole Roman Empire. Uh, more than half a million people. And that's before steel and high-rises and Toilets and, you know, public sanitation and things like that. Very dense. Um, and it's just huge. And it makes you feel small when you're in it. And it makes you think that your faith is somehow provincial or um, not very important. Your faith is something for the important people to manage so it doesn't get out of hand. Rather than being something more significant and real than power as it exists in the city. And then there's ethnic diversity um, that makes you feel like uh, maybe your religious beliefs are just some sort of a cultural artifact that people like you or from where you're from happen to believe. And that was really hard in Antioch. They had, uh, they built it, time of Alexander the Great, someone named Seleucus, I'm told, and um, built a big wall around the city. And then he built a bunch of walls inside the city for the 18 different ethnic quarters that existed in Antioch to keep them from each other's throats. So they had walls inside as well as outside uh, because they were so ethnically diverse and they couldn't handle that any better than we can. Right? So they had to build walls in the city to keep themselves apart. But when you're in a little walled enclave with just people who are in your ethnicity and things, you, you start to think, well, maybe this is just like a local deity thing. It's just my provincial 
this is just, you know, the religious opinion that works for me or the experience that I've had that it works for me, but it doesn't, doesn't feel like it could possibly be true in some global sense. True for everyone, whether they believe it or not. And then it's religiously pluralistic. Most cities are. Uh, Antioch certainly was. Our city certainly is. All kinds of religious beliefs. Um, Roman Empire's basic approach to uh, religion was, as long as you'll uh, say that Caesar is Lord, you can believe and do whatever you want, basically. We're okay with you. Uh, we figure you'll, you'll simmer down and not cause trouble if we let you worship how you want. Just do, do tip the hat, of course, to say the real Lord is Caesar, and we'll be fine with you. That never went too well for the Christians. Um, when they came and preached Jesus is Lord... It meant that Caesar isn't, and that always caused problems for the believers. But when you're in a big religiously pluralistic area, it's easy to feel like your religion is just one more like National Geographic documentary uh, about the quaint ways of these folk people, you know, who happen to have this peculiar superstition and belief. And pluralism can have that kind of effect on you to make you feel like the faith is implausible, because you know so many people who are sincere believing other things than what you believe. And I think it makes, it makes it feel like the city's a hard place uh, for Christianity because of that. And then you see there's just the basic air you breathe. There's so much money, there's so much political power that it makes you feel insignificant. Like that's, that's real, substantive, powerful stuff. And saying that Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father just sounds like, uh, you know, a myth that keeps the masses calmed down, uh, not the real story about where political power lies in the world. And then in the city, in this city, and in our city, and most, uh, the ethical demands of Christianity are at odds so often with the culture. Uh, sexuality was a huge problem in Antioch, it was known in the Roman Empire as being kind of the, uh, the low bar for sexual ethics anywhere. And uh, um, when Juvenal was talking about Rome's corruption in its later days, he said the Orantes has flowed into the Tiber, if you know what I'm saying. The Orantes was the river in Antioch, the Tiber in Rome. Um, but they weren't just licentious sexually. They were... Uh, they were sexual religiously. They had temple prostitutes in several of the different cults there, which means that people took their sexual ethics not just as something they're getting away with that they really know they shouldn't be doing. Uh, they looked at their sexual ethics as what made them good. It was the observance of their religion. It's what made them a uh, right-thinking and right-minded and open person. And so, man, the, the, the Christians' ideas about what sex is for were very different and very challenging for anybody who was considering converting. So, again, that makes you just think, how's the gospel going to get any traction here, the Christian faith? It's also an academic town. I don't know how their academy related to town the way ours does. But, you know, there's always the superiority intellectually and condescension of the academy that tends to produce doubt in people to say, wow, it's, I'm living around so many people so much smarter than I am that don't agree with me. And, you know, that can be unsettling, right? So you figure people don't come to the city 
to get religion, right? They don't come to the city to look for Jesus. They come to throw off their benighted and reactionary past. They uh, to leave their provincial ways and their provincial habits where they've been sheltered and superstitious. And they're going to go to the place where people are uh, all about what's new and enlightened. They're going to be open and alive. And when you think of that way, the Christian faith, you think, wow, it looks, it looks weak. Uh, in comparison to the city, in the context of the city, our morals feel backwards compared to those of the people around us. And our truth claims seem at first stupid and then dangerous to people. If we think we actually know what's true about the world religiously. So people are just too smart here to become Christians, too rich here to become Christians, too cool, too amenitized to become Christians. Now... We're not in a super cosmopolitan place. I mean, the dirty tea is not Chicago or Boston, right? And uh, has a small town flavor to it in a lot of ways. But my assumption, I think, that nobody had to tell me, and I think most people's assumption is that this is a tough place for the Christian faith. And historically, it has been. um, It's one of the least churched uh, cities in the U.S., and it's surprising because there's not a whole lot of stridency against the faith here. There's just not a lot of traction for the faith here, it doesn't seem. And if we're going to be in this place trying to be a town and gown church, as I think what they call us, um, close to the city, close to the university, then all of these ways that the city is daunting are going to press pretty hard on us. Yeah, they're going to press pretty hard on us. So... I want to talk about why these assumptions about the city don't hold up with Christianity, though, and why this is a good place and a fruitful place for the gospel. Again, noting that the early church had all its success in the cities. Do you know the word pagan? The word pagan is the word farmer. And people got called pagans in the days of the early church because they didn't live in the city, so they probably weren't Christians. It was the, uh, the cities that were reached first and the countryside that was not reached so quickly. And so when I look at that and I think about where we live, you look at the relativism and the pluralism and the urbanization, I think this is opportunity place for us, right? This is where, this is the kind of setting where the gospel has thrived, where Christianity has thrived in the past. This should be the place we want to be. If we want to see new people coming into the faith and thriving as Christians. Um, It says in verse 21 that when they started speaking about the Lord Jesus uh, to the people who were unfamiliar with Judaism and the faith, it says that the hand of the Lord was on them. And of course, that's the key anytime anything happens with the Christian faith. It's God's doing. It's what he's willing to do. But he has typically worked in cities uh, pretty dramatically. Um, His hand is not less strong in the city just because there are impressive things in the city. And your friends who live in the city are not less likely to become Christians than people who live in the red areas on the demographic map. Everybody that becomes a Christian is a miracle, right? And your friends are not less likely uh, than your country friends are to become Christians. But the city, on one hand you could say, that works to our advantage is open to new ideas. Yeah, uh, probably more so than in most 
uh, rural and even suburban areas open to new ideas. You know, the sign on the street on Speedway says the university has better questions and better answers. I think Christians can work with that, right? <laughs> if got people actually uh, talk about questions and talk about answers, we have, we have good questions and answers. That works well for us. And then the city and kind of the university setting also clarifies the Christian faith. It's easier to see it for what it is in the city than I think it is sometimes in rural areas. Because uh, in the city, you're less likely to, to uh, conceive of Christianity as a political movement. Right? It's not just a political action committee or political club. Because in the city, when you have all these different ethnicities and people from different places and different perspectives, the Christians aren't going to agree politically all that often. And so there's going to be fuzziness. But you're not going to get the idea that, oh, these people are all just together because they agree politically. And that's a misconception a lot of people have about Christianity in America, less so in the city. Um, less likely to think of Christianity as just a cultural artifact. Because you, know, you say, um, we dismiss people and say, oh, well, you know, that person's Roman Catholic because they're Irish, you know, or that person's Muslim because they're Persian. And that makes sense to us, and there's some truth to it. But when you look at Christians in a city, you're at a loss for the generalizations that you need if you're going to make statements like that. You've got people from everywhere who don't have hardly anything in common except that they all have hope in Jesus Christ. And they're together, and they're sharing their lives together. And so it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to dismiss it as just some sort of a cultural artifact from a certain people group. Because it spreads beyond them. You also uh, are less likely to think of the gospel as, as just moralism. As just a scheme to get people to be good and to behave better. Um, because nobody looks at a church in the city and says, well, these are all the, the uh, refugees from the places where they have good Midwestern values. It's all the, it's all the goody two-shoes, nice people, uh, white sheep of the family who've gathered together uh, and found each other to have a good people club. Because, you know, we just, we don't qualify for that. And it's pretty obvious that we don't qualify for that. Most churches in the cities don't. That's why they had to call them Christians here. They didn't have a word for them. You know, they couldn't just say these are the, the Jews. Because most of them had been Jewish, but they weren't now. Uh, you couldn't just say this is the certain uh, group of people geographically, uh, ethnically, because they were all mixed together. So they needed a word for them. They said, well, what? they all follow Jesus. So Christians became the name there. That's where they started calling them. Uh, don't know what to... When, when uh, the church in Antioch, it says a couple of chapters later in Acts, it mentions five of their leaders. And they, they're, uh, they come from three different continents and four different ethnicities in a group of five. Um, so it was a blender there. They had... Uh, Across the beams and the cats and dogs were living together in the church in Antioch. And um, that's a lot more likely to happen in the city. So it's also easier to see your need of Jesus when you live in the city. I contend. Um, because of who comes to the city. Now, the city attracts younger brothers, to use Jesus' uh, analogy of older brothers and younger brothers, the compliant child and the the uncompliant child, uh, they rebel differently, 
right? The compliant child rebelled by staying at home and doing his duty and uh, trying to be his own Lord and Savior himself through his good works and his dutifulness. The younger brother, who tends to go, the kind that tends to go to a city, uh, went to live the wild life in the faraway land. But if you're a younger brother, it's a lot easier to see uh, your idols. You know, if you're using sexual fulfillment to, to try to give you a life, or if you're using a career ladder to try to give you a life, uh, it's easier to recognize that than it is to recognize moral achievement as your idol. You're saying, I'm going to use moral achievement to keep me from needing Jesus. That's a pretty subtle thing in your life to recognize. So when things crash down in your life, if you're thinking sexual pleasure is going to give me a life, you think, oh, yeah, well, I guess that was a bad idea. I probably need Jesus. When your moral achievement crashes down around you and things don't go well, you don't think, well, I should have known that was a bad God. I really need Jesus. No, you say, what? How could this happen to me? Jesus has let, I was being good and God has let me down and it's not fair and I'm angry with him. You know, the younger brother runs to Jesus. The older brother blames Jesus when his life goes bad. And so younger brothers who are out there a little bit, who like to live in the city, have an easier time recognizing their need for Jesus. And it's also harder to hide from the brokenness of the world in the city. I used to live in the suburbs uh, of Atlanta, and the genius of the suburbs was to protect you from ever seeing anything you didn't want to see. You know, you never saw dead people. You didn't really see poor people. You didn't have to see rich people, for that matter. It was great. You just saw people that were about like you, and everything was pretty pleasant and insulated. But in Antioch, they had 200 people per acre. Think about that. 200 people per acre living with no high-rises and no toilets. Um, All the poverty of the city, all the brokenness, all the crime of the city was on display. And it's hard to hide from it. It's hard to say everything's great and getting better all the time because you have to stare brokenness in the face when you live in the city. And that's a help for people with the gospel. And it's It's one reason why these Christians got turned out so easily in the mercy ministry and they were so easily compassionate towards the uh, Jews in Jerusalem and their famine and willing to take up money and send it there. It's because they didn't live lives uh, isolated from need. And that's good for you in your faith. Is it harder to live as a Christian in the city? Some ways. Probably it's harder. You have to work a little harder to love your friends. One, you have to use the vernacular when you talk to them because they don't know your they don't know your jargon. A lot of times, people aren't familiar with the faith. That's why when uh, these people from Cyrus and Cyrene who started, they were everybody just been talking to Jews when they when they got dispersed because of the persecution. And these people, who knows if they even thought they were supposed to do this, but they started talking to people who are unfamiliar with the faith. And uh, they couldn't say, hey, good news, Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah who's come. Because people would say, what's a Messiah? (laughs) Um, So they went and they preached the Lord Jesus. They put it in terms people could understand. We know what, you know, we know Caesar's pretensions. And so we know what it means when you say Jesus is Lord. You mean he is, he's the king over Caesar. And they put it in terms people could understand. We have to do that too. And it takes a little work because jargon is easy. It's shorthand. It's helpful. 
But to think hard about how are my friends going to understand what I'm saying takes some work, so that's harder. You have to know a little bit more about apologetics if you live, I think, around a lot of people who are unfamiliar with the faith because they're just going to have different questions. Um, you know, we used to hand people tracts when I was growing up that said, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But if you do that here, it'd be like, well, you know, which one? <laughs> which God? Uh, you're assuming a lot when you start by telling people that God loves them. So you just got to do a little bit more work to be able to answer some different questions and maybe sometimes some harder questions. That's harder. Discipleship has to be a little more rigorous in the city uh, because uh, it's a little bit tougher place. There are fewer external reinforcements for your faith. And so they were very zealous about it here. Uh, Barnabas and Saul really were working, teaching the new believers, trying to ground them in the faith so that they'd be stable and secure in their faith. Um, Especially true if you raise children in the city. You have to be you have to work probably even harder because there's less cultural reinforcement for them for their faith. So that's a little bit harder. Um, they get to learn things they wouldn't get to learn in other places, which is pretty great. But it's still a little bit harder job for parents, I think. You have to be more dependent on each other as a Christian community uh, because you're you're living more with a minority position. And you need each other more because of that for reinforcement and uh, assurance, comfort, help. Um, yeah, have to be more deliberate about your real faith that God can change people. Because it's easy to be around people where you think, man, they'll never become a Christian. I can't imagine them becoming a Christian. And to remind yourself, you know, nobody's further away than I was. Um, nobody's more of a miracle than I am coming into the faith. But it's challenging for you when you have friends who really aren't interested. I've got friends who the favorite thing they have about themselves in their life is that they're not an evangelical Christian. You know? And when we stop and pray in the service for our friends who aren't Christians yet, that's who I'm praying for. And I'm, it's a push, right, of your faith to say, do you think God can really change people's hearts? Uh, I believe he can, but the city presses on you that way. Your friends are not too smart, they're not too cool, they're not too liberal, they're not too messy, they're not too rich to become Christians. They're just not. So, what was their scheme in Antioch? Quickly, the big plan that they put into place. Some people who weren't necessarily told to started talking to other people. Right? Some people from Cyprus and Cyrene Somebody from Africa, somebody from the island of Cyprus started talking to friends who weren't, who weren't familiar with the faith, who weren't Jews. That was the plan. <laughs> they didn't have a church planner. They didn't have a scheme. They didn't raise any money. No minister. They just talked to people, shared their lives with people who were not familiar with the faith. Um, so these are expat, possibly homeless lay people that talk to other people, and that's how the big movement of the gospel started in the huge city of Antioch. We didn't find the, the most eloquent person to send because everyone would rally around the star minister. I mean, I know that's the approach we've taken here, but they didn't. And, uh, but people less knowledgeable than you are uh, started and were the human cause of the growth of the Christian movement in Antioch. The big cosmopolitan city. So, um, 
Why do you think God has you here? What do you think he's doing having you in Tucson, having you in Midtown in Tucson, having you a part of this church in Tucson? Is it, is it for your sake? I mean, maybe you just think Tucson's really cool and downtown's the coolest part of it, and it could be argued. But um, that's probably not the biggest part of God's reason for having you here. Right? It's probably maybe for your sake in terms of your faith, where uh, you get a lot of, of clarity when you're around big challenges to your faith. But more likely, he's got you here for the sake of other people, the friends that you have. Um, yeah, I don't know who's in your life, who works with you, who lives in your neighborhood. Who do you run with or uh, have, uh, you know, do exercise or listen to music or whatever you do? Who do you do that with? Uh, I'd be suspicious if I were you about what God is about to do in their lives. Why has he got you here as a Christian and why has he got them in proximity to you? Um, if you hadn't figured it out yet, our plan for this church growing is not uh, Charles and Julie's magnetism. Right? <laughs> um, I mean... We're more in the Barnabas role. Some of you who are here who are older are in the Barnabas role too. Uh, to hear, to try to invest in the lives of people who are newer to the faith and younger as Christians. Um, but the outreach plan for our church is for you to talk to your friends. And that's what we're hoping to see happen, right? So um, God may have you somewhere that's not super comfortable for you. That's usually what he does when he wants to use you. He puts you somewhere outside your comfort zone. A place you might not necessarily choose. Somebody that's risk, someplace that's riskier than where you usually live. Maybe lonelier than where you live. Barnabas didn't want to live in Antioch, probably. He's comfortable at home as a Jew in Jerusalem. But he went up there and he stayed with them. Invested his life there. And it's not uncommon for God to use people when he puts them in an uncomfortable spot. So... Uh, if you find some frustrations living where you live, uh, at least ask yourself and ask God, well, what's your scheme here? Why do you have me here? Uh, what do you have in mind for me in this place? I mean, Julie and I feel that way. It's a little bit easier for us. We, we you know, got sent by the church to come to Tucson uh, to plant a church. We told them no at first because I thought they meant Phoenix. And I had been there before, and uh, a nice friend who loved me enough to know the difference said, no, you, you should go see Tucson. It's different than you think, and we did, and God let us love it easily. You know? um, you'd, I'm a pretty good complainer, and we've, we've loved Tucson and love being here. Um, but being here under these circumstances convinces me that... Um, God has compassion for this place, that he still loves cities and that he loves Tucson, that he has people here, that he wants to know him, and that he has you here as a part of that mission. So I'm pretty excited to see what the future is going to hold for us and what God is going to do here among us. And I'm really glad to be doing it with you. I love the little group that he's got uh, gathered up so far, eager to see what he's going to do going forward. All right, now let's pray.